This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is For I Left Populism by Chantel Mouffe. We are currently witnessing in Western Europe a populist moment that signals the crisis of neoliberal hegemony. The central axis of the political conflict will be between right and left-wing populism. By establishing a frontier between the people and the oligarchy, a left populist strategy could bring together the manifold struggles against subordination, oppression, and discrimination. This strategy acknowledges that democratic discourse plays a crucial role in the political imaginary of our societies. And through the construction of a collective will, mobilizing common affects in defense of equality and social justice, it will be possible to combat the xenophobic policies promoted by right-wing populism. In redrawing political frontiers, this populist moment points to a return of the political after years of post-politics. This return may open the way for authoritarian solutions through regimes that weaken liberal democratic institutions, but it could also lead to a reaffirmation and extension of democratic values. For a Left Populism by Chantel Mouffe, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. On one level, it's not so hard to understand the criminal justice system. It's a racist form of social control that functions to discipline and contain poor people, and poor black people in particular, who are systematically denied the means of survival under American capitalism. It's an easy talking point for gutless politicians who sell fear in exchange for votes. And it's a system that provides ordinary people with a provisional answer to real crime, including violent crime, under a government that makes it hard to imagine that any other answer is possible. So, all of that is fairly straightforward. But the actual mechanics of a system that arrests and incarcerates such a huge number of Americans are pretty hard to comprehend if you're not a lawyer. That's where Josie Duffy Rice, who is my guest today, comes in. She has a new podcast out from The Appeal called Justice in America, which she co-hosts with Clint Smith. Briefly before we get going, we depend on your support at patreon.com slash the dig. If you listen to the show and love the show, but haven't contributed yet. Please take a quick moment to prove the capitalists wrong and stop free writing by making a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. Here's Josie Duffy Rice, a writer at The Appeal, which is a criminal justice news website where I also write, and she's the host of Justice in America with Clint Smith. Josie Duffy Rice, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start by shamelessly promoting your new podcast. Great, I love shameless which promotion. Is called, <laughs> <laughs> it's called Justice in America. Explain 
what it is. Yeah. So um, the podcast is hosted by Clint Smith and me. And Clint and I um, are doing it through The Appeal, which is um, my the outlet that I work for. And the hope was that we could really do a couple of things. One is provide some actual structural background to some of the issues that um, matter in criminal justice, in the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who really care about mass incarceration or, um, you know, like the racist criminal justice system or getting innocent people out of prison. But as for the way the actual system works, there are a ton of people whose knowledge base doesn't match um, their enthusiasm. Um, and it's it's it can be hard to kind of get that basic information. So we wanted to uh, provide some basics about issues such as bail, such as plea deals, um, and then do a little analysis of how these these issues actually play out on the ground, who they affect the most, um, you know, where the injustice part of the justice system comes in at, at, at each of these junctures. And then we also interview experts. So each episode is about an hour. Um, and so far, it's been really interesting. We're both learning a lot. And the hope is that if you are interested in the criminal justice system, uh, whether or not you are just, you know, nothing or whether or not you know a lot, there's something for everybody. It's hard to think of another issue that so many people care so much about and that impacts so many people that's so Byzantinely complex and and full of jargon. So it seems like your podcast is very useful in terms of laying out at a very radio lab <laughs> level like precisely you know not assuming that anyone knows how for example bail works right right and walking people through how it works because huge numbers of people in this country are in jail every night simply because they can't afford to make bail right. but precisely how that happens which I think a lot of criminal justice writing, including writing that I'm sure I've done, sort of presumes people understand how that operates. Right. But this podcast really breaks it down in a way intelligible to listeners who have not gone to law school. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, I think it's interesting. When I first got out of college, I worked at the public defender's office. And I remember that every you you, you don't want to ask too many questions because you're scared of sounding stupid, right? So it was sort of a year of me just trying to overhear how <laughs> how systems work um, and try to figure out exactly what these people were doing every single day. And then I went to law school and actually nobody really teaches you the ins and outs of the system there either. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard me complain about this before, but law schools don't really teach you the law anyway. Um, and so there's <laughs> there's there is this um, there's this real gap, I think, even between people who can. Um, identify some of it. The actual way it works is is not clear to a lot of people, and I think it's it's that way intentionally. Um, and so, uh, trying to make it more accessible um, is the goal. Important, maybe even for law students who are spending a lot of time learning things that are not actually that germane to the criminal justice system as it operates under the United States's current system of mass incarceration. Yeah, in fact, I would suggest not going to law school and paying all of that tuition <laughs> to me and Clint and um, we'll teach you everything you need to know. Um, yeah, I think it I, I think actually 
in some ways, going to law school makes it more confusing because um, so little of how the system works actually has to do with the law. <laughs> a lot of it is custom, um, policy, just a different sort of you're, you're in a different headspace when you're actually thinking about how bail plays out on the ground than you are when you're like trying to interpret the statute. Right. And so um, the hope is that no matter what your background is, there's something for you. And one more promotional note, which is that the appeal or I'm a contributing writer yes. or a writer in residence or something of that sort right. has come out of seemingly nowhere to become a pretty influential journalistic voice in the criminal justice debate and the the movement against mass incarceration for for listeners who aren't aware what what is the appeal and how does it fit into the the broader criminal justice media ecosystem compared to let's say mainstream outlets which cover criminal justice like the times and the other outfit the other major outfit that i'm aware of that focuses exclusively on criminal justice which is the marshall project well, Daniel, you were there at the beginning of um, what the appeal is now. But over the past about um, year and a half, the Justice Collaborative, which was formerly the Fair Punishment Project, has been trying to, and I, I, I don't know if there's uh, this is the right word, but let's say improve for the sake of conversation, um, some of the criminal justice coverage that exists. And the problem is not that, um, is not that like, not necessarily that the journalism that was out there was um, malicious or, you know, the people who are writing it are stupid or anything like that, right? It's that there's, again, there's a big gap between how the system actually works and um, and pe- it, it's hard if you're not actually in the system, it's hard to know how the system actually works and it's hard to convey some of the issues that really matter um, on uh, to, to wider audiences. So I think part of that is because a lot of what's happening in the criminal justice system is happening on the local level. You know, you see that the New York Times and I think um, the New York Times, Washington Post, um, there are some like incredible uh, criminal justice writers at those places. There is some really good coverage. Um, you know, when you think about Emily Beck. Like look at the Times investigation of, of SWAT team home invasions, for example. Right, right. Or, you know, Emily Bazelon consistently it has such a good grip on the system that she mm-hmm. writes really um, well about it. I would say Wesley Lowry at the Times, I mean, I'm sorry, at the Washington Post is, an, yeah, is another great one. It, it's not that like they, they don't have good people. It's just that to actually cover criminal justice, you need a very, you need a couple of things. One is that you need um, people who have, I, I think you need at your disposal, people who have practiced in these systems and understand how they operate, right? You need to be able to um, to understand like the local level stuff really well. So that means like having deep relationships with a lot of organizers, a lot of local community groups on the ground um, who can talk to you about what they're actually seeing. Um, and I think part of it is that you have to name the bad guy, right? This is a big thing at the Justice Collaborative and at, 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 um, at the Appeal is that a lot of times criminal justice coverage across, across the board um, traffics in mistakes were made, right? Something happened. Mm-hmm. We're not actually naming the person who did the thing. We're just going to say the verb, <laughs> you know. Um, and what that means is that, like, it's really hard to to get accountability in the system. Now, that I think I, I would say that that's changing, and it's changed a lot over the past few years. But 
our goal is to recognize, um, you know, to identify the actual things that are happening on the ground, recognize who's responsible for them, and, you know, try to, as they say, sunlight's the best disinfectant, try to make sure that people understand what's actually happening. Um, we've, we've, we really have just gotten so lucky. We have amazing stories coming in from people like you and other, um, other writers, freelancers, and, you know, people who really know not only the system, but maybe their local system particularly well. And I'm really, really proud of the work that um, The Appeal has produced over, especially since it's relaunched. So over the past couple of months, I just think it's been um, really incredible. I think you made a lot of critical points there, especially the geographic diversity of criminal yeah, the criminal justice system because it's really criminal justice systems, right. which is part of the the problem is that I mean you look at some of the the state of the debate over mass incarceration sometime at a uh, sometimes at a national level and some of the problems with the debate reflect the fact that it's so hard to grapple with something that is so heterogeneous, right. you know, across this entire country. So you end up with people kind of fixating on things like private prisons right. which are a problem right. or just like people getting arrested for pot which is a problem right. but these are not the these are not the central problems right and um, it's hard to understand those problems without understanding the system more widely and like you said you know like a lot of the attention goes to the federal system right like how you know how much conversation is around um just the federal criminal justice system when it actually makes such a small part of what's happening every day but it's difficult. Like, you know, that local news is being gutted, right? Um, And that people who are covering criminal justice in a relatively small place probably are covering 10 other things, too. They probably don't want to have a bad relationship with the DA because the DA, you know, gives them information or hints or, you know, they probably don't even know what to look for when they're looking for certain kinds of wrongdoing, like prosecutorial misconduct. You look at a place like Orange County, California, where R. Scott Moxley, who writes for the OC Weekly, is one of the best journalists, I think, um, in America. And what he's done is spent the past, you know, probably half a decade really just needling the DA in Orange County. And it turns out that this guy, Tony Rakakis, is just has a history of prosecutorial misconduct, was sort of acting with impunity, and nobody was really holding him accountable until this local, this guy, R. Scott Moxley, came around and, um, and, and focused on him. And if you had a person like that in every, in every city, you know, we'd be obsolete. But <laughs> unfortunately, he's um, few and far between. And, and I understand why that is, because the life of a local journalist um, makes that really difficult. So uh, we're hoping to fill in some of those gaps. Another important thing seems to be that it's a matter of not only calling out and exposing misconduct, but showing how the system, when operating at very much as intended, produces right. the most serious problem of all, which is mass incarceration. Even if we Absolutely. got every wrongfully convicted person freed, Absolutely. Uh, numerically, that would be a rounding error. Exactly. And I think that is another, I mean, to your point about private prisons, private prisons and innocent people get, you know, they, if you took them out of most of criminal justice coverage, you wouldn't have that much left, right? You'd have some, but they take up an inordinate amount of the stories. And I understand why that is, because um, I, I understand the outrage about both those things. But a lot of people in the criminal justice system are both guilty and um, and victims of a system that is overly harsh, overly punitive, racist, classist. Um, and so how the, the reality is, like, we have to be able to talk about... Um, all of those stories in order to change the system. 
Let's talk about a case somewhat like that that you've written about recently that's in one of these grayer areas where the mm-hmm. some of the most pervasive injustices of the criminal justice system lie, which is the, the case of Katina Curley, uh, who you wrote about recently. She was charged with murder in New Orleans East and sentenced to life after shooting and killing a husband who, it turns out, had consistently abused her and her children for years. She she recently got released on bond. Explain the initial case against her, her recent court victory, and what the implications are for women everywhere in this country who defend themselves against abusers. Sure. So Katina Curley um, was in her early 30s in the mid-2000s. So this was 2005. Um, she and her husband, Ronaldo, had been married um, about 10 years. Um, she had They had seven kids between them, um, and they basically had a history of abuse in their marriage. Um, Katina had been abused by Ronaldo repeatedly, um, constantly, uh, for a decade. Um, and at the time that this shooting happened, she there were six um, previous police reports um, about Ronaldo's abusive behavior. Um, He had a history of it with a former partner as well. You know, I think, uh, you know, her whole family testified that they um, had sort of seen this pattern of abuse, including her, including her children. And um, one, one day, uh, so this was March of 2005, they were arguing, um, the argument turned physical they were kind of going back and forth, and she had actually moved out a couple days before to go live with her mother um, because the conflict between them had gotten so extreme. Um, so she thought to herself that she wanted to go back to her mother's house. She went to grab her keys from the dining room table. He was in the living room, and uh, she says that he kind of started moving towards her, and in her head, she knew that like he was going to hurt her again, right? And, she, and, and, and the way that Katina testified about the story she was kind of always in fear that this would be the last time this would be um it because the abuse was getting worse um she she was she felt kind of trapped and so that is all to say that one night she um he's moving towards her she's in the living room and she uh shot him once in the chest and he died um when she went to trial, and even when she was interviewed by the police that night, right, the frame was kind of couple gets an argument, she gets really mad, she's jealous um, about something that's happening with a woman and that, may, that, you know, a woman that he might be having another relationship with, and she killed him. And when she went to trial, um, she was convicted and sentenced to second degree murder, which in Louisiana meant she got life without parole. So, um, you know, her, and her case barely made. It seems like it barely, you know, made the news. Like there were a couple of articles about it, um, but she really, she, it was not a major story. It was not a major injustice. There was one other local op-ed that sort of said, this seems kind of crazy. But other than that, it just kind of died out. Um, recently, and it's kind of complicated about, you know, uh, battered women's syndrome, which is a defense and criminal law um, and an insanity plea and some technicalities about um, Louisiana law. But let's let's just say recently the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled that she did not have effective, um, she did not have uh, 
she suffered from ineffective assistance of counsel, which meant her- because her initial defense lawyer that never brought this up, this issue of 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 what being subject to such frequent physical abuse could have could have done. To her. Right. Exactly. So the the thing about it is that he did tell that, you know, he did present to the jury information about the abuse, but he did not present sort of the psychological effects that have that such abuse has on people, particularly women, if they've been suffering from it, especially for as long as she was. Right. It's not it can't be isolated to the to that exact incident. It's just an accumulation of incident after incident, moment after moment, fear after fear over 10 years. And, you know, people have studied this. We know that that has a real impact on um, on the brain and on the decision making process in moments like that. So anyway, the lawyer did not present that evidence. He um, has been very clear now that he made a mistake, that he regrets it, that he thinks she should get a new trial and that the way he put it was the abuse that he saw um the the abuse that he understood that she suffered was the worst abuse he had seen in his career so anyway she has now been granted a new trial and she was let out on a thousand dollars bond um and what's been interesting about it is that the da in new orleans who if you don't know his name is leon can leon canazaro um is the da in new orleans and he is um known for being particularly harsh um particularly regressive, and he was very critical of her getting a low bond, calling her a violent offender, et cetera. And, and this, you know, the, is, this is a DA that also is infamous for locking up victims of domestic violence when they refuse to testify against their abuser. Yeah. So he, how do these two, and, and he's also the DA in one of the most incarcerated uh, counties, it's a parish, but whatever, counties in yeah. the in the country. What he's doing um, in the Katina Curley case, I mean, literally releasing a statement saying he thinks her bond is too low, which is, you know, it's not as if DAs release statements every time they think someone got a low bond, right? So his decisions really underscore what we already know about him, which is that he is not um, a DA that cares about justice. He's a DA that cares about convictions. Um, That's not rare. He happens to be particularly bad. um, And he has a history of kind of boasting about his record on domestic violence um, and then doing things that just completely, you know, subvert that assertion. Um, One of them, like you said, is that he has a history of jailing women who don't want to testify against their abusers. And what we found out and what a study, an article by Aviva Shin for for, um, the appeal and a study done by Yale Law students found that, like, he has jailed 50 people. Not all of them are domestic violence victims. Some of them are other victims, uh, other other victims or witnesses to other crimes. But sometimes on bonds as high as, you know, $100,000 because they don't want to testify, which is um, really unheard of and is another way to kind of not just criminalize victims in particular, but criminalize women who are suffering um, from domestic violence and are terrified of Um, what kind of implications testifying might have, um, what kind of implications calling the police may have. Um, So basically, he's repunishing the people he should be protecting. It seems fitting that this one DA combines both this extreme punitiveness to, to perpetrators and punishment and blaming of of victims because the carceral politics of domestic 
violence really involve both of those things in, yeah, absolutely. in complicated ways. So the system, as your article shows and uh, Curly's case shows, you know, the system locks up women acting in self-defense, but it also it also makes arrest and incarceration the primary option available for victims. Right. Which has prompted many feminists on the left to criticize the role played by what they call carceral feminists right. in the rise of mass incarceration. Can you right. say a little bit about how the carceral arm of the government currently operates, both in terms of the way that they deal with alleged abusers and victims of abuse and what a better system might look like? It's important to be clear that domestic violence doesn't take one form. It deals with an entire spectrum of behavior, um, uh, psychology, and, uh, you know, million, literally millions of people. So I don't want to draw any, um, I don't want to draw any complete lines. Um, when I, when I talk about this, I understand there's nuance in every way. I think that, um, I think a couple of things. One is that we live in a world where our criminal justice system reflects the worst parts of us as a people, right? And I don't just mean um, punishment and retribution, but I mean when a lot of America is still racist, right, our our incarceration system reflects that. When a lot of America is still um, sexist, our incarceration system reflects that. And so you um, – what – what Leanne Canazaro is doing uh, when he's kind of incarcerating victims is not is showing us that our system is not the best it can be. You know, our system is not it's not separate from us. What kind of um, issues that we retain as a society, they're reflected in our system. And you can see that in the way that he treats women and treats um, treats domestic violence victims. I think what you're getting at is very, very important um, even further, though, which is that the system that we have is playing a role it is just not equipped to play. Um, that That's true in domestic violence. It's true, I think, in addiction. What it's doing is trying to solve a problem without the right tools to solve it. It's a punishment system, right? It's a system where um, when there are people who need help, when they need therapy, when they need assistance, when they need a long-term solution, it is often the worst system that you can go to. And I think Katina Curley's case really shows that. She had called the police. Um, there were, or let's say, let's put it this way. There were six police reports, like I said, um, documenting Ronaldo's history of domestic violence. Now, she had not contacted the police in years. And part of that, part of the reason for that was because that was an ineffective way to deal with domestic violence, right? It either means he's going away for years and years and years. She's a single parent. He doesn't get any better. Nothing changes really in terms of like his instincts and the way he treats women. Or perhaps it means he gets out tomorrow and this starts all over again. He's not given the sort of resources and help that he needs. She's not given the resources and help that she, she needs to either um, change some of the issues in their relationship or for the, you know, if they can't be changed, figure out a, a healthy and sustainable way for them to not be together. Um, and the reality is that we don't in this country, we don't provide the services and resources necessary for women who are uh, victims of domestic violence, for men who um, who are perpetrating domestic violence and who don't have access to therapy or programming. And that's not to say that those those things would necessarily 
change um, those men. It's not to say that they don't necessarily need to be held accountable for what they've done. It's just to say that this system, um, as it currently exists, does not know how to address kind of the complications of intimate violence and what happens in people's households. And what it ends up doing is just criminalizing. And in the case of uh, Leanne Canazero, not just criminalizing um, the wrongdoers, but criminalizing the victims, actually criminalizing women, jailing them for being victims of rape, for being victims of domestic violence. I mean, it's, it's, it's unconscionable. Yeah, there's there's like simultaneously impunity for many domestic abusers right. who will never exactly. see the inside of exactly. a jail cell, but then also incredible punitiveness in in other cases. In either case, very little to, to help or protect people who are suffering the domestic violence, right? Um, let right. alone to give them the economic independent economic power they might need to to leave if they wanted right. to. Right. You know, that same week that Katina Curley um, was convicted and sentenced to life without parole, that same week, that same courthouse, right, a man named Jeremy Colbert was on trial for um, also on trial for murder. And he had uh, had a previous relationship with with a woman. He had a long history of abuse, stalking, verbal abuse um, and basically just really torturing this woman that he had dated and was now no longer with. She had a restraining order out against him and um, he violated it. And one night was sitting in her parking lot hiding um, and saw her with another man. It turns out that this man was her friend, not that that makes would make a difference really at the at the end of the day but you know um just a friend and acquaintance she knew and as they kind of came back into her parking lot to hang out at her apartment uh, to hang out at her apartment this guy Jeremy unloaded his gun basically and shot the his ex-girlfriend's friend over and over and over again and killed him and then he tried to kidnap his ex-girlfriend right so he goes to trial the same week that Katina Curley is on trial and he's sentenced to manslaughter and he's uh he's sentenced to 40 years in prison and his lawyer kind of frames it as like she you know she taunted him she basically she she's part of the reason that this happened it's just another example of how we um as as a society and as a criminal justice system don't really understand what abuse victims need and how when something goes horribly wrong, we try to pin the blame on them very often. Switching gears, I, I want to ask you about the general state of the fight against mass incarceration, more banally known as the criminal justice reform movement today. On some level, it's at best stalled because we have... Jeff Sessions as attorney general, someone who thinks that good people don't smoke marijuana, uh, right. which is like just the probably the funniest of his beliefs. The rest are pretty just terrifying. And at the same time, though, we have Larry Krasner as DA in Philadelphia. Right. And we see critiques of mass incarceration being central to a lot of electoral campaigns right now. What do you make of the the direction of the debate? This is a very different place than this moment of seeming kind of moderate bipartisan consensus that we were at on the congressional level a few years ago when people were talking about rolling back some mandatory minimums. Now it seems like there's this polarization underway, maybe 
where we have some really great radical proposals being made and some really terrifying mm-hmm. ones from yeah. fr- from the right. Yeah, I think that's a, a good summary. You know, a couple of years ago, really just two and a half years ago, even though now it feels <laughs> like, right, feels like two decades, but just my entire um, expectation level and the tone of the debate was really, really different. Um, now I feel like some doors are being opened up for us to talk about much more difficult things, while I also feel like there are some kind of dreams of change that we have to abandon because the opportunities for them to happen um, are are gone and may not show up again for, for a few decades. Um, ultimately, for me, the talk about mass incarceration is – is about a lot of things. It's about people's humanity. It's about my own failings. It's about my own experiences. Um, it's about justice, but it's also about government power, right? It's about what kind of power um, we give the people who have the power to punish us. Um, and in that way, I think we are still dramatically, dramatically, dramatically behind where we should be. You know, it's kind of shocking to me when we think about the fact that Donald Trump is in the presidency. I mean, sorry, Donald Trump is in the White House and he has this 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 unbelievable power to shape policy and um, national narrative. And, you know, though these are the kind of people that not him in particular, but his kind of people are the kind of people that could tomorrow arrest me and sentence me to life without parole for various Things for various reasons, um, none of which are things I've actually done, but that has not stopped them um, before. These are the people who have the power to lock you up in cages. I mean, you look at Chelsea Manning, you look at um, Tarek Mahana, you look at the Netflix specials and the, you know, you look at all these stories of where you hear about the injustice and that could really be any of us. So um, what scares me is that people like Jeff Sessions and people like, um, people like, Republicans and also a lot of Democrats want more of that power and we're willing to give it to them. At the same time, like when you think about Larry Krasner, I never thought I'd see a Larry Krasner, right? Someone who is who is brave and willing to take risks um, as long as those risks may benefit his community overall. And he understands the community overall to include the people that are most at risk of incarceration, to include the people that may have a criminal record. And I think that is critical. Um, I think what he's doing is really unbelievable. I, We have a very long way to go. We still have millions and millions of people in jail um, and in prison in this country at this moment. We have almost 12 million people cycling through jails every single year. We now have even more people, um, not not when I say, and now we, we, we now have an increasing number of people um, in immigration facilities, which are functionally jails, functionally prisons. Um, we have tons of people um, and living under civil commitment. We have tons of people um, on probation, on parole, paying fees and fines, spending a couple of days here and a couple of days there in jail because they can't afford their traffic ticket. This is a national um, tragedy. Um, it's a national crisis. It implicates all of us. And even though we are in some ways better than we were 10 years ago, there are less people um, in prison uh, than there were 
10 years ago overall, we are not anywhere close to where we need to be. And at the rate we're moving, we won't be close to where we need to be for, for a very long time. So so while I think that there's hope, I'm I'm not yet convinced that we're there. Yeah, that's such a critical point that even though there has been mild overall decarceration, um, the the rates at which we're decarcerating are nowhere near as high and fast as the rates that we incarcerated to build mass incarceration in the first place. Exactly, exactly. My, my last question is, I want to ask you about this perennial topic on my show, which is what you make of the intense liberal infatuation with Jim Comey and the FBI. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird time, man. <laughs> it's a really, really weird time <laughs> um, in so many ways. I am not... I'm I'm talking separate from the actual investigation because um, I am not my opinions on the investigation are not well informed enough to be <laughs> to be talking about here. But I, I I do have a lot of thoughts about how we talk about um, James Comey, how we talk about Bob Mueller. You know, we are lionizing on the left these institutions and these people who we have traditionally been more skeptical of than Republicans um, and than conservatives. And I do think that that's a major, major problem. Um, In my experience, and again, we're living in an unprecedented time, but I think the polling would even show that that sort of, like you said, infatuation with the institutions um, persists long after the actual specifics of this incident um, will pass. And we're talking about um, we're, we're talking about people who have at various points in their career run institutions, run systems that have done real things to actually hurt the most vulnerable people um, in our communities, right? The idea that we are arguing, you, you see it all the time, like liberals arguing that documents shouldn't have to be declassified, right? Or that like, we should be locking up X, Y, and Z person, or we should be giving this law enforcement agent, whether it be a prosecutor, um, the former head of the FBI, um, or in certain situations, actual police, we should be giving them more power, not less. It's, it is, um, it is a major, massive, I think, oversight on the part of the left and something that we really have to grapple with because you can be glad that a certain thing is happening, right? You can be glad that a certain investigation is happening. You should be, you can think that someone has the right opinion on something. Um, You can agree with someone and not extrapolate from that, that that person should have more power or that that person or institution is, um, is a paragon of, of good. Because we hate Trump for good reasons, we should not in any way support the increasing the, the, the power and public legitimacy of institutions that historically and in the future under any government that looks like Trump's or Obama's or Bush's right. or Bill Clinton's will just continue to to persecute and incarcerate the very same groups, communities right. who Trump persecutes. Another example of this is the Golden State Killer situation. So, um, you know, a couple months ago in Sacramento, they caught the guy who has been known as a Golden State Killer. He had killed, raped, 
tortured a town, a city, a state um, for years, and then he kind of disappeared. And then 30 years later, they find this guy. He's he's old now. He has admitted that this is that he did these things. And the way they found him was through a genealogy database. Um, and I find that terrifying. Like, I, I, too, think that he should be held accountable for his wrongdoing. And yet I'm very not comfortable with local prosecutors running people's DNA through systems and um, and having access to kind of that level of personal information. To me, that's that is an extreme form of surveillance. And maybe at its best, what it does is catch the Golden State Killer. And maybe at its worst, what it does is, you know, catch one of us for something that like is not actually illegal, but they want to silence us. You know, that sounds extreme. And I understand that that sounds extreme, but I do not think it's far off from possibility. In fact, I think it often happens, not necessarily with um, genealogy databases yet, but with other forms of surveillance. And I, 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 we're not very good at um, nuance on either side of uh, the political aisle, at least um, the more centrist Democrats and I would say pretty much the entire right. And what we are dealing with is with this kind of lack of systemic analysis and without a skepticism of the systems and people that have have just not yet earned our trust, we are going to see, like you said, the same presidencies, the same DAs, the same local governments, the same state governments, um, and the same kind of forms of power forever. Let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> Josie, <laughs> Josie Duffy Rice, thank you Just so much. Just leaving you on a very positive note. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Josie Duffy Rice is a writer at The Appeal and the host of Justice in America with Clint Smith. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the executive of the modern state is nothing but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And last but not least, do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 